God, you can be seated. It was so good waking up in Wales this morning, staying in the hotel where President stayed last week. Um, a few people thought I was Obama this morning in the lift. Um, I could tell they don't get out much. Um, it's brilliant to be here. You had a busy weekend all over the news. Newport became like super famous last weekend. Um, just because a few presidents of the earth come and visit. I don't know what that's about. The King of Kings is here this morning. Amen. The King of Kings. It's a pleasure to be with you. We bring you greetings from, uh, from Portsmouth and from Family Church. I think it was last July that we were with you and uh, all's going well with us. We're now one church with 11 congregations and God's continuing just to uh, cause us to plant into places and see lives change. But it's a privilege to be here this morning. I really sense there's change in the air. As I walked through the doors this morning, I was conscious that I'm coming into an environment of change, yet I know nothing. Um, I so appreciate Pastor Ray and Lila. I've known them for many, many years, and I think this must be about my 14th year or so of coming here on a Sunday once a year. But this morning when I came through the doors, I was greeted by such an expectancy of change in the environment. And I began to say, God, what are you doing? Uh, Because we came in a little bit late. We had a quick cup of tea. I didn't get a chance to spend time with anyone this morning. But God began to give me a number of pictures. And one of them was a picture of a deck of cards being shuffled. And I saw that the hand that was shuffling the deck was not the hand of man, but the hand of God. And I saw that there was a movement within the cards. I saw that there was a movement within positions within the cards. But no card was moving itself. These cards were subject to the hand of another. And I just sensed that God wanted just to bring an encouragement to you guys this morning. But there's a spirit of change in the air. But don't worry, it's not just in Newport. It's all across Great Britain. It's all across the British Isles. But I really sense that we need to stop praying stupid little prayers, give us revival, and understand what God wants to do. He wants to bring the spirit of reformation back through the body of Christ. He wants to reform his church to be everything he needs it to be. If you look around and you watch the news at the moment, these are very, very strange days indeed. But God knows what he's doing. And I sense, you know, often we can get ourselves confused, send revival, send revival. But what we actually need is a reformation. We need the church of Jesus Christ to look and sound and feel again like the body of Christ that we're called to be. This is our finest hour to shine. With all the confusion that's going on in the world, I really believe that God is reforming his church. And for years I used to call myself, I don't know, people used to call me a whole bunch of stuff, but I used to call myself a revivalist years ago. But I don't do that anymore. I want to be a reformer because I see the harvest that's available in our nations. But it's going to be a reformed church that take that harvest home for Jesus. A church that lays aside the stuff that doesn't matter, the packaging that's not important. A church that gets back to the central beliefs. A church that gets busy with the things that Jesus is busy with. Amen. 
Not an old-fashioned church, a relevant church, but passionate about what he's passionate for. So as I'm walking throughout the land, as I'm working with our churches, everywhere I'm turning at the moment, I'm sensing change. And it's exciting. It's not change because we don't know what to do next. It's change because God's got a plan. Amen. And when I came through the doors, I don't want to cross any lines that I shouldn't cross this morning, but I just sensed there's change in the air. But it's the change of reformation. God's shuffling some stuff in his body because he's got a plan. One of the things I saw when I came through was a deck of cards. The other thing that I saw was a vine and a branch. And I saw a branch and I was reminded of John 15 where it says that Jesus is the vine, we're the branch, his life is our life, we find our union in him, amen. But then Jesus introduces us to the vine dresser, the father, who trims the vine or the branch, that it may bear more fruit. I just sensed that not in the negative context, but in the positive context, God is busy pruning you as a branch right now. He's busy pruning King's Church as a branch. Not negatively, not like, well, you've not been doing this right, let's cut that off. It's all good. That There's a changing in the deck of cards. There's some movement within places and people that are happening right now. And God wants to give comfort to you. That it's his hand that's shuffling the deck. But also, as you're seeing things cut and trimmed, that's the hand of a vine dresser who only ever trims the branch that it may bear more fruit. King's Church has always borne great fruit for the kingdom. Can you say amen? It's been a fruit-bearing branch but God wants you to bear more fruit than you ever dreamed and as I closed my eyes and worshipped I saw the branch being joined to other branches I don't know how that outworks but I saw a joining of the branch to other branches almost like the household enlarging um, you becoming a part things becoming a part with you I saw a coming together of other branches a joining with who you are with other things that God's doing in the world. So as I looked, I thought, oh my goodness, I walked in. You know, like you walk in to autumn and you're like, everything's changing here. Leaves are falling, leaves are coming through, the wind's blowing. It felt like that this morning, but positively. And I believe that God wants to bring an encouragement to you. He is blowing across our land with a spirit of reformation, which means every church that has ears to hear, is going to be experiencing and welcoming change. Sometimes we don't like change because it moves things that we're comfortable with, people that we're comfortable with. But we've got to trust, and this is what I sense God saying, trust the hand of the vine dresser. Because whatever he trims will bear much fruit. And I sense that the word of God over kings has always been, you will bear fruit that remains. Amen? And fruit that glorifies the Father. Now, I'm just being cautious what I say and what I don't say, but I just sense that there's a lot of change. There's a lot of vine dressing happening right now in the church. And God wants to underline he's doing things to bring greater glory to him. So we may need to sacrifice our comfort and our preferences for that which will bring greater glory to him. But also he's doing things that will produce much more fruit that will remain. 
So much fruit that's produced through revival is momentary. It has no remaining to it. God wants fruit that remains. And the way you get fruit that remains is you trim the branch hard. And I just sense right now for some of you, you're experiencing the hard pruning hand of a father. Just trust whatever he prunes hard, he has intention of great harvest from. So I don't know if that's useful for you today. I see the shuffling of a pack and people are moving. Offices are moving. Things are moving. There's a movement and God's hand is behind the shuffling of a pack. But also I see a branch being pruned. But as it's being pruned, it's being joined to other branches. And a greater fruit is coming that will remain. Can someone say amen? Obviously I subject all these thoughts and pictures to your pastors and I know they trust me and I love them, but just wanted to sense what was on my heart. I sense all across the land we're experiencing this, this reformation. Have you felt recently that the fashions of Christianity are changing? Come on, if, if you kind of work in and around church much, you see the fashions of Christianity. They come and they go, you know, I'm not talking about skinny jeans and t-shirts versus three-piece suit and brown tie. I'm just talking about some of the trends, some of the currents and waves of Christianity. Suddenly we all do this and then we all do that and then some people do this so we do it because they're doing it. I just sense at the moment all across the British Isles, all across England and Wales and Scotland, they need our prayers at the moment, (coughs) and Ireland, that there's a fashion change but what's intriguing me is this. I don't actually think it's about us becoming any more modern because I don't think the church can become any more modern. I think if we go to become even more modern, we could fall off of a cliff. I actually sense that the next fashion or move of the spirit is actually going to be a slight reverse maneuver to rediscover some of the things we lost in our desire to be modern. I sense that the Spirit of God, now I'm not talking about style of church, don't get your shofar out, don't get your Jewish medley out, we're not going back in style, but I do sense that God is calling us back to rediscover some of the things that in our excitement to be cool and trendy, we left behind, but we should never have left behind. And for me, I've just got this this burden at the moment, I I don't know how to describe it, I call it a a controlled reverse manoeuvre. But I'm not plummeting forward into the unknown and the unseen. I'm actually in my life and leadership. I'm in reverse. And I'm rediscovering things that made Christians strong generations ago. Because I'm asking questions. Why are Christians not as strong today as they were? Now, church has changed so much, hasn't it? Thank goodness. I mean, the church that I was born again in, we did things like we had 12 elders on the stage. You never did anything unless you had the 12 elders on the stage. They all had waistbands up here, grey trousers, grey suits, waistbands up here, red braces onwards. You know, if you got onto the overhead projector, you were in leadership. Now we've got all this stuff. It's awesome. It's awesome. Remember communion? We had the goblet. You never got to church late because you had to sit at the back and by the time the goblet got to you, it was like beef stroganoff. (laughs) Now we've got all these little cups and that. It's awesome. But for me, I've been asking certain questions. How does heaven quantify our success? We quantify it through numbers, performance, 
which isn't wrong, but we've got to be honest, that's just packaging. How does heaven quantify success? I believe that heaven quantifies success by transformed lives. Which means for us, we've been re-asking questions. Do we want crowd? Does Jesus want crowd? Yes, he does. But does he want to draw disciples out of the crowd? Yes, he does. And what I don't think we've been doing as well as the saints of old is bringing disciples out of the crowd. Training people how to walk in the Christian life. Training people, teaching people how to hear God for themselves. And for us in family church... We're really enjoying at the moment the season of rediscovery. That we've just recently rediscovered the power of baptism. And that was awesome, water baptism. We just rediscovered recently the power of, of, of taking communion. Some of the stuff that we lost focus on in our endeavor to be well packaged, I believe that what God's doing next, how can I term this? Old school will be new school. God wants to teach people how to understand prophecy again. He wants people to understand the power of being baptized in the Spirit again. He wants people to understand the power. Now, if you listen to the sound of our songs at the moment, come on, it's no mistake because everything God does is carried on sound, sound that comes from our worship. You know, recently, right now, in our current song list of Christianity, there's two songs that are based upon the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, God the Son. We're rejoicing and we're singing songs without thinking about it. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. To me, that's a cry from the heart of the body of Christ. It's brilliant how modern we've become. It's brilliant the equipment we've got. It's brilliant at how well we are at performance and event. But let's make sure that we're not just drawing crowds, but we're drawing people out of the crowd and seeing them transformed into the disciples that Jesus commissioned them to be. Because the Great Commission wasn't go get a crowd. It was go and make disciples. Disciples are made. And I just sense the Spirit of God commissioning us as leaders again to be makers of disciples. And makers of disciple makers. Now at the center of all this I believe there's a rediscovery of certain truths. For me my life was radically changed this year by rediscovering the simplest of all truths. Redemption. You know I was with you last July. And uh, we had uh, incredible meetings. And uh, I went over to Singapore, did some meetings there. And then me and my family went over to France for a holiday, rural France. And uh, we were having a great holiday, just enjoying it. I can't say I was in desperate need of an encounter with God or anything. I just wanted a break. And so we were in rural France, right in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, without warning, I hit the deck and I was crucially ill. And I was rushed in the hospital um, Gina had had the sense to see that I was going down. You know what we're like, guys. Unless it's man flu, we just pretend nothing's happening. If it's man flu, this is bad. But I didn't realize how sick I was. Gina had, so she'd programmed into the sat-nav a hospital. And I came down the stairs and I collapsed. She rushed me to hospital. My family were wondering what's going on. And when they rushed me in the hospital, my appendix had gone. Um, I didn't realize that I'd been carrying these appendix around that were infected, apparently for weeks, even when I was here preaching with you last time. Apparently, there was death in me that was waiting to kill me, but something was holding it back. And so 
I was rushed in the hospital and, and it wasn't nice because this was rural France and basically it was like an episode of Only Fools and Horses and I was Del Boy Trotter. That's all I can describe it to you. I was like the only English-speaking person. No one spoke English. And I was like Del Boy Trotter laying there. They rushed me in, they operated. The next morning the doctor came and I was making light of it. I said, did you get it all, Doc? He was the one guy that spoke English. I had five minutes with him every morning. And he said, are you Superman? I said, not that I know of. I wear my underpants on the outside, on inside of my trousers. It's just how I choose to do that. And he said, no, no, sir. We gathered around you when we opened you up. And I said, I'm glad that I could entertain you. I'm glad that I could uh, give you something to look at. And they said, no. You, you would have died. You would have had one minute to live if they'd gone. And I thought about the times I was on the planes and certain stuff like that. He said, we never seen this before. Your body was protecting you. Isn't that incredible? He said, your body was resisting this infection and your body tucked it away and protected you until this moment. And I thought that was marvelous, but little did I know what was going to happen later on that night. It was Saturday night and I was just drifting off to sleep, and I was grateful to be alive. I was grateful that God had kept his hand on me as I traveled. I was grateful that the doctors had removed the uh, appendix and some other stuff that had got infected, and apparently I was doing well. I was grateful I was worshiping. Then it's Saturday night. It was around 6.30, 7 o'clock. Without any warning, the presence of God turned up in that hospital room with no warning. It was just all of a sudden the presence of God filled that hospital room. And I've known the presence of God the whole time I've been saved. So I don't say that lightly. I've known the presence of God in worship and in meetings and in events. This was different. It was like the presence of the warmest father, the most loving father you could ever imagine. And it's like his presence suddenly came into that room. And I knew enough to know that he was going to do something. Little did I know what he was going to do. I sat in the presence. I began to weep as I felt him ministering to me. I drifted off to sleep eventually. I've I've, I've recorded some of it in a book. We've got some books out there. There's one book called I Am Redemption. I've recorded this because I want this story to continue to get out. But I drifted off to sleep. And when I woke up the next morning, I was still conscious of his presence. It was amazing. It was like my father had spent the night with me. Now, I know my theology. I know he never leaves me, ever forsakes me. I'm a temple of... I know all that. This was different. It was like the father had spent the night sitting in the hospital room with me as a child. But when I woke up, I felt so changed. I was crying. I felt more born again than I'd ever felt in my whole life. But I hadn't done anything. That's grace, right? I I woke up and I felt more of a new creation than I'd ever discovered a new creation. I felt born again. I felt fresh. I felt clean. I felt, I felt more alive than I'd, I, I'd ever. But at the center of it, there was one word. And I realized now it took me weeks to actually think about what God did in that moment. But when I was finally be able to be articulating it, I understand. But just as the doctors had reached in and taken out a rotten appendix, God had chosen that moment. God never made me sick. Never, God never got me ill. He just used that moment because apparently keeping me still for five or six days isn't easy. So God said, this is a good moment. Let's give Andy an MOT. But what he did is he gave me a heart transplant. 
And in that night, I understand now that what God did was something so incredible that would change me forever. He placed within me his redemptive heart for man in a way that I'd never understood. Because if you don't understand the redemptive heart of God, you'll never know God. If you don't understand the redemptive love of God for you, his word will never make sense like it should make sense. In the midst of that hospital room, at one point I started to get really scared because he started to speak to me about things that I hadn't preached on for eight, nine, ten years to my shame. So I'm laying there, cut open, and God begins to speak to me about the Lamb's Book of Life. The big white throne and the lambs and and the lake of fire. I'm like, God, are you going to kill me? I repent. Whatever I did, I'm sorry. God, no. But I realized suddenly that God wasn't speaking about me. He was revealing his heart. That the heart of God is still that none would perish. But in all of our modern preaching and church building, when did we forget that there's still a Lamb's book of life? And the most important decision each human has to make before they spend their final breath is to make sure their name is unblotted in that book. And God began to speak to me about the Lamb's book of life. And I realized, maybe because it's at the back of the book in Revelations, it fell out of mine. I don't know. But I'd not preached on the Lamb's book of life. I wasn't as passionate about the big white throne. I wasn't as passionate about the lake of fire. But they're all still there. They're still real. There's still a Lamb's book of life today. And it doesn't matter what book your name is in. If your name is not in that book through the grace of Christ, then what waits for you beyond this life doesn't bear thinking about. And I started to think about this and God began to show me his heart that none will perish but none that perish. Because when I was raised and I was hearing this stuff preached on, it was always terrifying, wasn't it? I was raised under a fire and brimstone preacher and he was good at what he did. And to me, whenever I thought of the lake of fire or the big white throne or the Lamb's book of life, I pictured God throwing people on the fire like like wood on a wood burner. But all of a sudden in that moment in the hospital, I realized how different How not true that is. That the heart of God will ache for every person separated from him in that day. And we've got to catch the heart of God. We've got to catch that redemptive heart of God that loves man so much. Let me read you what's become one of my favorite verses. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that we've been redeemed, that we've been experienced redemption from our empty way of life handed to us by our ancestors. But we were redeemed. We've been purchased back to God with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, redemption isn't just what God does. Redemption is who he is. Redemption isn't just what God does. What is redemption? We've been taught by theologians, and they're right, that redemption is to purchase back by payment out of debt a person that needs freedom. But to me, redemption's become so much bigger than that. Redemption is who God is. It's his heartbeat. It's his heartbeat for us. 
Redemption is God's dream to make broken things work again. Redemption is God's ability for broken marriages to love again. Redemption is God's ability. Jesus said it so well in Revelations. Redemption is God's ability to make all things new. Not just in heaven, but here. So often we preach redemption is about what's going to happen in heaven. Oh, redemption's about heaven and hell. No, you're missing the point. Redemption is also about here. But every one of you need to know today that there's a God in heaven who adores you. And his heart is filled with redemption intention, redemptive intention for you. If your marriage is breaking, he wants to see that marriage become new. If your body's broken, he's not laughing at you. His intention or desire is that you be made whole. So I began to consider this old word redemption. And it came alive like it never had before. Because if you don't understand redemption, the redemptive heart of God, you don't know him like you could. But the Bible doesn't make sense like it should. Some of the stories in the Bible that never made sense suddenly make sense when you understand that God is a redemptive God. But God sits in eternity with redemptive intention. He wants to put you together, not break you. He wants to make you whole if you're not whole. He wants to bring wholeness to your life wherever there's not wholeness. He's for you. It's not his will that you perish in eternity or here. So I started to read the Bible. Like Kenyon once said, through the light of our redemption. And I started to see that stories that never made sense began to make sense. I'm talking to stories like Hosea. Hosea never made sense to me. Maybe because I'm a man, I don't know. I didn't get the romance and that of it. But when I started to read the book of Hosea, I used to read it. And you know the book of Hosea. It's about the man, the prophet, that's called to marry an unfaithful lady. Almost she's like a prostitute. But whenever I read Hosea, do you know all I, what I got out of it? Thank God that wasn't me. <clears throat> that was it. Whenever I read Hosea, all I got out of it was, thank God that wasn't me. Thank God that wasn't my mission. Thank God I got Gina Elms, or Gina Gardella as she was then. Thank God that's not me. But then suddenly I left this hospital and as I started to read these stories, understanding the redemptive heart of God, I began to realize that every one of these stories is God revealing his heart to us again and again. Every one of these stories that don't make sense is God, if you look deep enough, it's God saying, this is my redemptive heart for you, put another way. And I read the story of Hosea. It was portrayed recently in a great film where when she's young and she's beautiful, everybody's using her, everybody's bidding on her. But one day she gets a bit older and nobody wants her anymore. She's used goods. She's passed her sell-by date. And in this film, based on the book of Hosea, there comes this scene where the lady that's married to Hosea, the unfaithful bride, is standing in the marketplace. And no one's bidding. No one wants her. Everybody's had her. She's used. She's not worth anything. And the auctioneer is bidding, but nobody's bidding. And then all of a sudden, the crowd parts. 
and in steps her faithful husband, Hosea. And he looks at her in her nakedness. And he says, I will bid on you, my love, because I never stopped loving you for one moment. In all of your unfaithfulness, I could not stop loving you. Come home with me, my love. Let's build our life together again. I will never remind you of what you have done. I will love you as if you've been faithful. When I started to read the Bible, that old book of Hosea, I suddenly realized I was that woman in the marketplace. I was that person that had been so unfaithful so many times. And he was the God that stood and bid upon me when none other would. He was the one that didn't see me as junk. He was the one that didn't see me as vile. He was the one that didn't see... I started to turn the pages and then I read the stories of, of Ruth and, and, and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. We know these stories about this woman that had a great life. She was happily married. Everything was great. Then her husband dies and her life is ruined. It, it's destroyed. And you read about Ruth. She's got faithfulness to her mother-in-law. But you read that she's, she's begging. She's going around this field collecting scraps when she once had a life. But then in steps Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And he buys the field to gain the lady. He restores her back to the life she deserved. Again, when I read these pages, I don't see Ruth, I see me. I see a God that loved me so much. He bought a big old field filled with so much rubbish to gain the heart that was in the field. He took my life from broken and set my feet upon the rock. He gave me life again when it had been taken from me. Other stories like the story of Mephibosheth. To tell you the truth, I'm just amazed I can say that correctly. (coughs) Every time I say it, I'm like, there you go, that must be God. Mephibosheth, every time I say it, even when I take myself by surprise, Mephibosheth, it still comes out. With my speech impediments, I'm amazed that I can say Mephibosheth. I actually enjoy saying it. But I never understood that book because I didn't understand the redemptive story of it. But all these books in the Bible that don't seem to make sense, if you understand the redemptive heart of God, you understand that all of these random stories keep saying to you, your father is a redemptive God who has a plan to put your life back where it was meant to be. You read, you read about David and David, David, he worshipping and he realises that he's got a covenant with Jonathan. And he says to his horsemen, go find Mephibosheth. Because they said Jonathan had one son. And so the horsemen of David are looking for, for the son of Jonathan. And they come to David and they say, oh, we found his offspring. You won't want him. He's broken. You won't want him because see, Mephibosheth, had broken legs. But what you've got to understand about his storyline is he didn't do that to himself. He was dropped by somebody that should have took care of him. The breakage in his life was due to the negligence of another. And David said, I don't care if he's broken. My heart is full of redemption. 
my heart is to restore him. He said, go find him. But the other problem is, instead of running to David, Mephibosheth's hiding. Because he'd been told that David (coughs) was not nice. He'd been told that King David had nothing in his heart that was good towards him. And so he was hiding from David. Do you know, when I think about Mephibosheth, I think about the communities that God's sending us to. But as I'm spending time with people in our communities that are all bottom 1% rough areas, they really are, when I begin to hear the backstory of people, I realize that so many times the breakage is in their lives. Just like Mephibosheth, weren't caused by what they did, but rather the negligence of an uncle, an auntie, a teacher, a parent. The people in our communities, just like Mephibosheth, they're broken, but so many of them didn't break themselves. But the sad thing is, so many of them, instead of running to this redemptive God, they're hiding from him. Because some religious idiots have misrepresented God to them. Instead of running to the house of God, instead of running to a redemptive God that wants to put them back together, they're hiding Because some religious idiot told them things about God that weren't true. But then you see the horsemen of David, they find him. And they bring him back to David's household. All these stories came alive when I understood redemption. And it says, David was so excited and they sat Mephibosheth at David's table. Now just think about that for a moment. As he was seated at David's table... The tablecloth of that table covered everything that was broken in the life of that crippled boy. It was like he was just like any other. Listen, what I want to put to you is if we bring people not to the table of David, but to the redemptive table of King Jesus, his tablecloth won't cover their brokenness. He'll mend their brokenness. He'll take their brokenness away because the heart of God... The heart of God for man is one of redemption. To make all things new. To make broken people work again. To make sick people well again. To make people who have been broken down, restored back up. But we need to understand our role as a church. We've been commissioned to carry this redemptive heart into the worlds that we live in. You know, another verse that came to mind when I started thinking about this stuff was Psalm 107. And it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Anybody remember singing that when they were a kid? I was one of the cheeky monkeys at the back of a church with my nine mates. And the pastor used to sing, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And me and my my, my nine mates would poke our heads up, so, and duck, (laughs) just to annoy him. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we go, so. But I never understood that verse until I understood for myself that God was a redemptive God. Then I read it in the NIV and it put it this way and I just got it a lot clearer. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. In all our becoming modern as a church, what we lost was some things we never should have lost. 
We've got to remind the redeemed of the Lord, that's you and me, that every one of us have got a story to tell about how God redeemed our lives from the hand of a foe. Amen? What is this silence that's come upon the modern body of Christ? But people have stopped telling their story. The Bible says, let the redeemed, if you're redeemed today, give me a wave. Come on, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. That means every one of us today should leave this place looking for someone. Who can I tell my story to? I'm the redeemed of the Lord. Now, I'm not just talking about who's been redeemed as in heaven and hell. Because if you look back over your shoulder for a moment, you've got more stories than just that one. Remember the time he healed your marriage. Remember the time he healed that relationship. Remember the time he stopped you going under financially. Remember the time you were sick and he healed you. Remember the time you were down and he lifted you up. Each of those stories is a redemptive story about how God stepped in and changed the storyline of your life. But we have no right to stay so quiet. I just want to encourage you and commission you today. This week, find as many people as you can and tell them your redemptive story. But in closing, I'm just kind of skipping across stuff. I've recorded it better in my book if you're interested. But the other thing that really God put on my heart was, number one, it's vital that we recatch the redemptive heart of God. But we understand that his heart is filled with redemption. Not just for us who are saved, but for those who are not just saved yet. Number two, we've got a purpose again to be the redeemed of the Lord that say so. Not the redeemed of the Lord that sit quietly and keep everything a secret that he's done for us. But number three, what a privilege. What a privilege that God has given us the right to be carriers of his redemptive heart into the lives of other people. Come on, we've preached the Great Commission so wrong for so many years, we've made it so obligation-based, when it's a privilege. God is looking for men and women, just like you and me, who will say, I don't want to live selfish Christianity anymore. I want to be a carrier of this redemptive heart into the lives of others. I'm one who has received this redemptive heart and it's changed me. But now I'm going to carry his redemptive heart into the lives of others. I'm not going to be David's horseman. I'm going to be Jesus's horseman. I'm going to go find a Mephibosheth and drop myself in his storyline in Jesus' name and believe that he will see a redemptive turnaround just like I did. That's the mobilization of the church. You know, when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he was making a point. He was painting us a picture, I believe, of the New Testament Christian. But we are not those who walk on the other side when we bump into need. That's the religious and the Pharisee. But we are those who he portrayed in the story of the Good Samaritan. We are those who have experienced God's redemption in our lives so that when we find brokenness, 
we realise something very powerful. Now, don't take me wrong when I say this. When you see brokenness, when you see people that are being broken and destroyed, when you see people that are struggling and need help, I'm going to say something that could offend some of you. Listen to me. God's not coming. When you see that person broken, when you see that person down and out, when you see that person needing a help, needing God to do something, do you know what I've realised most times? God is not coming. Not because he can't, but because he sent us. We've been given the privilege to carry the redemptive heart of God, to step into the storyline of other people's lives and say, we're going to turn this around in Jesus' name. Do you know, the moment I left that hospital in France, I think the devil sent me in there to die. I think he was really annoyed because I came out more alive than I'd ever been before, more dangerous than I've ever been. Because I found the redemptive heart of God again. I found that pure, simple love that God has for people, saved and unsaved. That his heart breaks when they're breaking, that his heart weeps when they're destroyed. And his heart is filled with, with redemptive intention. But that redemptive intention includes you and me. Just as Jesus carried his redemptive heart into villages of Jerusalem and surrounding regions when he walked the earth, now we do that. But the other thing I've learned is redemption will always cost you. Redemption, all, there's always a bill. If you don't understand that, look at how much you cost, we cost, the Father. Wherever there's a redemptive plan, there's going to be a redemptive bill. And we need to be that church, that modern church with old values that says, all right, Jesus, drop me in the storyline of another person and I will roll up my sleeves. I will get my feet dirty. I will get my wallet out to see their storyline changed. If David hadn't stepped into the storyline of Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth would have continued to live as a disinherited cripple when he was an inheritor. If Boaz hadn't stepped into the storyline of Ruth, she would have remained a beggar when God had other intentions for her. If Hosea hadn't have stepped into the storyline of the unfaithful wife, who knows what her, the end of her story would have been? What if that person hadn't stepped in, in Jesus' name, into your storyline? Because very few of you met Jesus personally. Most of you had one of his followers step into your world carrying his heart. Now we've been given the privilege, how powerful, that we can step into people's situations in Jesus' name. And I know you guys do this so, so much through Jesus Cares and the other ministries. And I want to encourage you, keep doing that stuff. That's what God's all about. That's what God's all about. We wrote a song recently, we're singing in, in family church, that kind of sums a lot of this stuff up and it just simply is called Changing Stories. And the chorus says, you are your changing stories. You are your turning the tide. Just at the right time, you change our lives. Listen, 
Number one, let's remember that God is a redemptive God. The message of the gospel is one of redemption. Number two, let's be the redeemed that say so. Let's not keep our stories secret any longer. But number three is what I really want to leave in your consciousness this morning. God wants to send you out of this place this morning ready to be dropped into the storyline of another. God wants you to be his good Samaritan in the manuscript of another person's life this week. And it's going to cost you energy. Remember the Good Samaritan. It cost him time. It cost him his vehicle. It cost him a hotel for the night. It cost him time when he came back. But in that story, I believe Jesus was painting you and me. Ever since I've left that hospital, I keep bumping into need. Everywhere. I went to the Philippines. And ended up rebuilding a village because I was in this village preaching and we got a whole bunch of people saved. When I left the village, I said, what's the name of that village? In the middle of nowhere, David. They said St. Andy's. (laughs) I was stuffed, wasn't I? And I said, yeah, we're going to help them in the future. A week later when I was back in England, the hurricane hit and they were destroyed. And I said to my church, listen, we got their soul saved. Now get your wallet out. We're going to rebuild their homes. But we're not building with bamboo. This time we're going to build with concrete so that when the wolf blows again, ain't nothing going to move in Jesus' name. Redemption isn't just about salvation. It's about let's put roofs over people's heads. Let's put food in their stomach. Let's give them safety when they're in trouble. Let's see them like God sees them and do something about it that's that's going to change their world. Prayed recently. This is costing me a fortune, God. This is costing everywhere I'm going. I said to him, Everywhere I'm going, I'm seeing need. Where did it all come from? Do you know what God said to me? It was always there. You weren't looking. Come on, church. The age is wrapping up to an end. I don't know when. But I know the age is wrapping up. God is doing stuff now, which is vitally important. And in the midst of it, he's reforming his church. He's delivering us from being distracted by the conservatories and the sunrooms we've been building. To coming back to build the things that matter to him. Right at the center of everything we are needs to be an understanding of redemption. That God is a redeeming God. He's a God who's got the power and the ability to make all things new. To step into the storyline of the most broken and bring them to freedom they never perceived possible. But in so many times and instances, he's not coming. He's looking for a people, a church, that will lay down their preferences, lay down their comfort, lay down their convenience, and say, Father, I will carry your redemptive heart. Health warning, the moment you do that, God's going to begin to drop you in the storylines of people's manuscripts. But he's dropped you there because he has a divine redemptive intention And you're the deliverer of it. 
He's looking for people to be pathways of redemption that will join a people that are confused about who God is back to a father that's never stopped loving them. My challenge this morning is twofold. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced the redemptive power and love of God. You need to do that this morning because Christianity won't make sense till you do. You know, I see so many times people struggling to kind of work out what this thing Christianity is. But to me, the bottom line is, if it doesn't start from understanding the redemptive love of a redemptive God, then it ain't going to last long and it's not going to go very well. But if we can get people born again, straight away with an understanding that there is a God in heaven whose heart is filled with redemptive love for them. Then all of a sudden Christianity can be grounded correctly. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, you need to do that this morning. If you're here today and you've never given your life to this redemptive God, you need to do that this morning. I'm going to pray for you if that's you, and then I'm just going to take a few minutes afterwards just to pray for some people that need redemption to break out in their lives. Because I just sense that my redemptive God has some redemptive plans today to turn some wrong stories around. And believe me, I don't take long. One prayer, that's all I'm going to ask you to stay for. But before we pray that prayer, if you're here today and you've never understood that there is a God in heaven that loves you, there is a God in heaven that loved you so much, he allowed his son to die on a cross to redeem you, to buy you back to himself. And today you must understand that. If your name isn't written in the Lamb's book of life, you must understand the severity of that. Can I just have two more minutes, David? When I laid in that hospital, I knew it was God. As I laid in that hospital... God was showing me the Lamb's book of life, the lake of fire, and the big white throne. But it wasn't the judgment I knew before. It was the heartache that was in him for every person that would be lost. As I laid there, I began to get worried because I began to remember that Gina was coming to see me soon. She didn't know what God had done that night. I was a mess, Haley. I was a mess. I felt more born again than I'd ever felt in my life. God had given me this heart transplant. I was a mess. Gina walked in the room just according to cue. When she walked in, she got scared because she saw me laying there crying like a baby. And she thought the doctors had given me some bad news. And she said, are you all right? I went, I've never been better. I've never been better. And I started to blubber out. God's changed me. God's put his heart in me, Gina. God's been talking to me about the lamb, the the white throne and the lake of fire. And I was a mess. And I thought she was going to call the doctor and say he's gone. We knew it was going to happen. He's gone. And she began to cry. And I said, why are you crying? She said, last night I had a dream. I love this, that when God's doing something with one part of a marriage, he's always doing it with the other part, because he believes two are one, even if society doesn't. And I said, you had a dream. Now, you've got to understand, Gina don't have dreams. I have dreams. 
That's why I always look tired. I've got two worlds. I've got a whole other world that waits for me when I sleep. Seriously. I've got a whole other bunch of friends. I've got a whole other business that I'm running. I've got adventures. Seriously, I shut my eyes. I say, good night, family. Kiss them. And I go off into another world. And that world, I just, I'm like a crazy dreamer. Gina doesn't dream. And when she says I had a dream, that's as, a, that's as significant as Martin Luther King standing on the steps of Washington when he said, I had a dream. I mean, that's the severity of this. And I said, what was your dream? And she said, listen to this. At the same time that God was working on me, she said, I was in a big white room. And I was conscious of a fire that was burning very, very hot. She said, then I became conscious of the presence of a father and the presence of a son. She said, then I heard, though I couldn't see them, I heard the son say, Father, this is going to burn. This is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. And there's nothing you can do to help me. She said she then heard the voice of the father say it is going to burn. She said his voice was filled with so much anguish. And he said, there's nothing I can do. Because your last breath was spent. In that moment, we sat in that hospital. And we realized the importance of the last breath of a person. It determines where they spend eternity, man. But God's heart in it all isn't, come in, throw them in the fire. Every one of them, I want you not to perish. I want you to be with me. I want you to be with me. Oh, in all our modern Christianity, we've got to allow that redemptive heart to get back into us. So that we love what he loves. We care about what he cares. We're passionate about people being in the Lamb's book of life. How about you? Are you in there this morning? Would you close your eyes with me and just pray after me if you would? Jesus, just pray after me, Jesus. That's 20 of you, the rest of you. Jesus, thank you that you are redemption's masterpiece. You were the payment made for me. Thank you for dying on the cross to redeem my life back to the Father. That my life would be named in the book of life again. Through you I do not fear a lake of fire. But I have a confidence and assurance that my life has been made new. I am his and he is mine. Thank you, Jesus, for putting my name back in your book of life. Just my every eye's closed, every head's bowed here. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, if you're here today and you've been away from God and you say, I need to do something about that, I don't want to leave this building away from God. I want to settle my accounts. I want to be right with the Lord today. If you're here, you've already prayed the prayer, I'm going to count to three. And then when I count to three, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. 
If you don't know where you stand with God today, if you say to me, I don't know if my name is blotted or unblotted in the Lamb's Book of Life, but I want to know today, Andy. I I don't know if I'm saved or not, but I want to know today, Andy. I ask you with all urgency, don't leave it another week. Don't leave it another day. Make sure you are right with God today because no, no, no man knows the hour or the time. All we know is he is coming soon and all the signs that we see give evidence that it ain't going to be that long. So don't be caught like a foolish virgin. Be a wise virgin. Be ready and waiting for his return. Today's the day to make sure you are so right with God there's no question marks. I'm going to count to three and if you need to give your life to Jesus today, I'm going to count to three and if you need to give your life back to God today, I want you with all boldness to put your hand in the air like you mean it. Here we go. One, get ready, get ready, get ready. If it's you, don't hold back. If this is you, don't wait another week. Two, there will be other moments, but what's wrong with this moment? This is a great moment. Here we go without looking around. This is every person thinking for themselves. Three, put your hand up if that's you, nice and high. Right now, nice and high, and you say, that's me, Andy. I don't know where I stand with God. I want to make sure I'm right with God. I need to know my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Is there anyone today? Just pop your hand up. Just making sure today everyone knows where they stand with the King of Kings. Everybody knows they're saved by His wonderful grace. Everybody knows where they stand with Him today. Just in this couple of moments, just checking. If you don't, pop your hand up. Pop your hand up. Pop your hand up. Just making sure everyone in this room knows that their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The last prayer I want to pray is a simple one. If you need God to do something redemptive in your life, stand up. If you're in a financial situation and you need God to do something redemptive, stand up. If you're in a relationship situation and you, got, you don't like where it's going, you need help, you need God to do something, stand up. If you're in a situation of your health and it looks like there's no way, there's no way out, you don't know which, you need God to redeem it, you need God to turn it back around, stand up. If you've got any situation in here today and you're saying, I need a redemptive God to step into this storyline because I can't turn it around. I need God Almighty to turn this story around and I need it now. I want you to stand to your feet. I've prayed this prayer over hundreds and thousands of people. And sin things break out on the same day. Sin things break out. Because all we're doing is we're turning our faces to a redemptive God. Saying, Lord, let your redemptive intentions manifest here on earth with me right now. Every eye closed. Father, I thank you for these standing today. Lord, each of them represent a storyline that isn't right. A storyline, a manuscript that isn't going according to plan. Every one of them represent a situation that needs your help. Needs you to step into, Father, and turn it around. Just like Mephibosheth, just like Ruth, just like Hosea, Lord, just like this. Any God, step in. Father, we just stand in agreement with each of these men and women this morning. We turn our eyes to a redemptive God whose heart is filled with redemption for man. And we say, Father, would you begin to release redemptive miracles? Redemptive miracles across this place. Father, would situations, even this very hour, 
begin to turn around for your glory and your fame. And all God's people said, Amen.